Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Today I'm talking to Tracy Alexander, Director of Forensic Services for the City of London Police, President of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences and Fellow of King's College London. Tracy walks us through the fascinating world of forensic science and the complexities of handling evidence. Please note, though, that this episode does contain depictions of violence that some listeners may find distressing. I'm Tracy Alexander. I'm the Director of Forensic Services for the City of London Police. I'm also the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences uh, and I'm a fellow of King's College. So what exactly are forensic services? It differs slightly according to the police force uh, that one works for. So those differences are caused by, to a certain extent, geographical area and then also crime types. So for example, the City of London Police is the national lead force for fraud. So very large, complex fraud cases and financial crimes are investigated by us. So other forces might pass those to us when they get to a certain level of complexity. Um, so the departments that I have within my area are all of the traditional ones that might, one might think of in terms of a forensic investigative offering. So we've got a scenes of crime department, which has the SOCOs that go out to do fingerprint examination, collecting trace evidence, collecting DNA. Sorry, you oh. said SOCOs. What are SOCOs? Scenes of Crime Officers serves ably to, to demonstrate how long I've been doing this for. I believe that the term now is um, CSI, Crime Scene Investigators, I have those, and also Crime Scene Managers who would be deployed for murder investigation or the, the more sort of high-level um, perhaps longer lasting, complex cases, a serial rape, for example. So we have scenes of crime officers or CSIs and crime scene managers in that group. Uh, we have collision investigators who will look at fatal car crashes or multiple incidents, anything um, where there's going to be a life-changing injury, um, because clearly the impacts of that and the forensic outcomes of that can um, have quite significant impact on both the potential suspects and the victims. We have a fingerprint bureau who are brilliant. So 
that's where I um, started my career, in fact, at the Fingerprint Bureau in New Scotland Yard. So they process all the finger marks that are collected by our scenes of crime officers and identify those by comparing them against the National uh, Fingerprint Database, about which I could speak for a long time. One of my favourite things. Um, it's been around for a long time and it's incredibly successful still. So perhaps we'll talk about that later. Uh, we also have a laboratory where we develop finger marks, um, which is now at King's College. So that's coupled in with some uh, with research projects that we do with King's. So we take some of the master's students. Uh, we've also got a PhD student at the moment, and we'll look at ways of better ways of developing finger marks, for example, better methods of collecting DNA. Um, I've got a PhD student at the moment, and we're looking at specifically wildlife crime which is one of my new passions, uh, but we're, we're making some, some headway there. Um, but we also have the uh, high-tech crime unit or digital forensics unit. So not every police force would have that as part of its forensic services offering, but that's quite a, an important part of what we do in the city, simply because of our, our key role in those fraud investigations. But clearly their skill sets stretch right across every crime type. So they will unlock encrypted phones take data from digital devices, anything from a phone to a, to a server or, or an array of servers, uh, and then process that, um, that information for the purposes of giving either intelligence or evidence to an investigative team. So I think of all my groups as, in a certain way, they, they are multidisciplinary and there are some areas where they cross over, but essentially the, the function, as I see it, of a forensic services department is to exploit every forensic opportunity that there is for an investigation and then present that evidence to the senior investigating officer or that person's team to progress the investigation towards ultimately uh, a trial and then managing that process all the way through to the other to the other end. Okay, and because I'm also a master's student, uh, funnily enough, doing uh, at the part where we're doing our CSI and forensics, um, I've been really blown away at how broad this is. You know, you sort of think of forensic evidence and you just think, right, that's at the crime scene. And of course it is, but there could be multiple crime scenes. And of course that could be anything and everything. And that sort of every touch leaves a trace. What's, um, what's that saying? Every contact oh. leaves a trace. Indeed, Edmund Lockhart. So Lockhart's principle, and I keep meaning to learn it in the original French because I'm, so, I'm sure it sounds better, but the concept is exactly as you've described. Every contact leaves a trace. So you're quite right. I think people imagine that a scene is, for example, if we had a murder and imagine where you are now that you'd walked into that room and there was a body on the floor and there's a knife in the chest and and this is exacerbated by all the television programs they are everybody rushes at the body and everybody's fingerprinting around the body and everybody's staring at the body well the body's not going anywhere and it's not moving so it's not losing anything but the person that you want is clearly not standing next to you. So they've already left that room. So the interactions that they had with the deceased will have caused an exchange of materials. And that exchange of materials could mean that there is vital trace evidence on your suspect who is now disappearing off down the road and getting onto a bus. So now you have anywhere between here and the street and the bus itself as being a scene. You have Maybe they went upstairs first, maybe they went down in the lift. So consequently, you can try to imagine how many known scenes you have, 
but there's also almost an infinite number of unknown scenes because if they are interacting with anybody or anything else, then they're potentially leaving information on the seat of the bus they got on. They've walked from here and they've removed an item of clothing. They may have dropped a knife down a drain. And your scenes become almost, they're growing exponentially the longer it is between the point at which they interacted with your victim, which is the only thing you've got control over, and those other unknown areas that at some point you will have to legislate for. Right. And then the bit I find even more complicated is then, of course, you have crime scenes where there's sort of no physical place. It's digital. It's in the ether. It's, you know, um, these frauds that sort of it's a push of a button and the money has moved, but actually the money doesn't really exist because it sort of does, but it's sort of over. So can you explain a bit more about that as a crime scene? Because that's harder to understand how you would gather forensic evidence for, because as you say, we're all used to the body and the knife and the room. Yes, that's tricky because obviously then there are, there are again, infinite varieties of how people decide to commit crimes. At the moment, uh, it just goes to show how any crisis will bring out the best and the worst in people. So there's this massive flood of people uh, defrauding individuals by selling false cures for COVID or false vaccines or going around actually injecting people. So there's all sorts of frauds. But those ones where you describe that there isn't actually any physical scene. So we've got a case running at the moment that's um, that's focusing on carbon credits. So a carbon credit is something that a large company will buy from the government in order to offset their, their footprint, their environmental footprint. So I want to build a power station. I need to buy five million carbon credits from the government at 25 pence each. And theoretically, the government then uses that money to offset your, your footprint by building a wind farm, or however it is. So it's essentially um, a way of making you compensate for the fact that you're going to be not as environmentally friendly as we all might like. But you can't get your money back if you buy too many from the government. So there are a few unscrupulous individuals who then buy the excess from the company and sell them to other people as if they were an investment opportunity. And they'll say, oh, buy these. Do you want an investment that's both green and guaranteed to go up? Um, and obviously, lots of people in, in very good faith will say, well, yeah, I would like to invest some money and I would like to help the planet. So, yeah, I will buy them. But then they'll send them, sell them at £6, £7, £8. The thing is, they, they can't go up because should a company, a different company, want more carbon credits, they'll just go back to the government and get more at 25 pence. But you can see how that might be a, a feasible um, story. So then who was involved in that and who's actually the perpetrator of that particular crime? So you know who your victims are because they're the people who've invested and have lost their money. They'll never be able to sell those. They can't sell them to anybody else. So money has gone somewhere. But it will go to a broker who might have done that through a company, who might have done that through a series of different people, all of whom are registered with the Forensic Services Authority. So it looks all very legitimate. But then where did they get those carbon credits from? So you have this network of people, and the trick is to be able to, to chronologically show it started, as best we can tell, here with this guy. He emailed this person. He then contacted him. So you've got phone records laptop emails, Excel spreadsheets, 
tons and tons of data and you need to be able to try to put that together in a way that is both disclosable to the defence because they have to have a chance to defend themselves um, and disclosure legislation in this country is really tricky and complex. So you need to be able to put it together so that somebody can defend themselves against it but also so that the jury can understand it because it gets complicated and they need to make a determination on who is actually to blame for this because the guy who bought the car on credits can say well I just bought them I didn't say they were going to go up and the guy that's then selling them on to the public can say well he told me that they were so you need to find some kind of physical evidence which is usually maintained within an email chain a text a whatsapp but until you research all of those things you don't know where it might be so those those kinds of investigations take years right so they're harder are they and take longer to unpick because of the cyber sort of nature and because everything's online but also because there are often so many people involved i think the way that people think of forensic investigation it's usually in the way that a, that a drama is presented on TV, as in one person's dead and one or two people are responsible. In, this, in these sorts of cases, in these complex fraud cases, there are lots of victims and there are lots of, I will say guilty people, but there are stages of guilt and there are ranges. And then you need to, to make your determination as in, is it in the public interest and do I have the resources to try to investigate all of those people or should we just try to go for, this is going to be easy because we know that they sold the stuff. Should we try to cut this off at the source and go all the way up and potentially lose the whole thing? Because we know we can prove it against these people. Are we going to get a win if we go right to the top? So those are all the kinds of determinations you make. But I appreciate even as I'm saying it, and I get very excited about this stuff, it's not as sexy as in, oh, would you look at that blood spatter? Great. Well, he must have been holding a knife and then it's moved in this direction and at this angle and then that's spattered over there. And then, oh, gosh, there's a footwear mark in another body fluid. And where does that go? So but but you need all of it in particularly the more crimes are committed. And we've seen such a rise lately when people haven't been able to go out. Burglaries have gone down, but the online frauds have gone up just simply because people are you know, stuck at home, they've been complying with lockdown, they're keeping themselves safe and they're, they're trying not to, to get fined for being where they shouldn't be. So they're doing the same, there's the same amount of criminal activity, it's just, it's gone online at the moment. It will be interesting to see if it goes back. Right, or... yeah, because we're very adaptable as human beings, aren't we? So if the only way to commit the crime is from your house on your computer, if you're lucky enough to have one, then... Um, so my next question is really around evidence gathering the point of it is obviously to prove that a crime has been committed and maybe by who but could you talk a little bit about the importance of gathering good quality evidence um, and how that evidence when it's taken from a crime scene it's sort of journey to court and how important that process is yeah i, I will try so Shall we stick with our, um, with our body on the floor with the knife? I think probably. So, so we've described already that we've got our multiple scenes. We've got our known scenes and our unknown scenes. So 
one way to think of that is how many resources have I got and how big can I make my cordon? And then let's deal with the outside areas first, simply because ideally you do everything simultaneously, but you never have enough people. So outside it could rain and I could lose something. We've stopped the traffic out there because we think our guy went left out of the door we've got CCTV or we've got a witness. So let's, we've stopped the traffic, we're holding things up, we're inconveniencing other people. Let's deal with our outside scenes first, right? Instruct those people working on the outside areas to, to move gently in and you might be asking for a fingertip search or you might be asking for um, a photographic record of what you've got. Everything needs to be recorded before you've actually changed anything. So all of that can be happening outside. Inside, when I've decided, okay, I can now focus on what I've got in here. What's going to be my my quick win? What's the what are the the primary things that I need to find out? Thing A is who is our deceased person because you may not know that, and clearly, if you know who that person is, that's going to help a lot in terms of who potentially might have interacted with them in the last hour, day, however long it is um, you think since they, when they died. So consequently, you need to know who that is and then what's my best way of finding out who plunged that knife into their chest. So the best way of doing it, you would think, okay, um, who's handled it? So you want some kind of interactive touch uh, evidence whereby you can search it on a database. And the only things that will that are searchable that will give you a name are the National Fingerprint Database and the National DNA Database. So I will just say with a caveat at this moment that because there is so little funding at the moment and because all forensic analytical provision, almost all forensic analytical provision in the UK is now in private hands, in private labs, and their focus is let's make as much money as possible, let's not do everything there is, Forensic investigation has changed a lot over the time that I've been working in it. Um, whereas our, our opportunities for uh, forensic evidence are very, very narrow. So the labs that we can submit evidential material to won't have their own fibers expert. They won't have a footwear mark expert. They won't have a tool mark expert. They will contract one in if you really demand it, but the cost of those things is phenomenal. So sadly, the focus is usually on finger marks and DNA because those things, you know, if you get a finger mark or you get some DNA, you can search it against a database, it will give you a name and maybe that's the best way to get the information that you need. It will certainly um, be the quickest way to give you a name so that you can give information to officers to try to apprehend, arrest that person as soon as possible, particularly if you think that there's a risk either of them harming somebody else or themselves as a result of what's gone on in the crime scene that you can see. Therefore, you think, right, I want to focus then on the knife that I've got, but it's stuck in our guy's chest. I can't remove that. There's nothing that I can do with that because I want a pathologist to see that in situ. What do we do next? So do we get the pathologist out or do we maybe think, if I took a swab of that knife handle, could I get that fast-tracked and could I be having that searched against the, the National DNA database and might I get a name in a couple of hours whilst we're trying to control and then, then process our other things? So the job of the crime scene manager is really to think, 
what evidence is there available and in what order should I collect it? So what are my fast track items? What's quickly going to give me an answer? And then what do I need to do eventually to make sure I have investigated everything that's there as thoroughly as possible? Right, because I think, sorry, just quickly, because as you say, um, what really strikes me is the simultaneous nature of everything having to be done now. So you arrive at the scene, you don't want to contaminate the crime scene. There's someone who might have been stabbed, but actually might still be alive. So then how do you um, sort of go to their help without contaminating what is a crime scene? And then at the same time, someone might be running away. And at the same time, you want to cordon off the road and you sort of think, oh, my God. How on earth, in that chaos, do you...? Well, the, the joy of the, of the forensic investigation is, so if I was working on a homicide command and I'm going to murder investigations every day, then they are definitely dead. I wouldn't even start planning the process. So the first responders, you get the 999 call, it's the poor uniformed police officers who are sent out in their blues and twos, and are, Mima, Mima. They are the people who are first on scene. They've got to make those critical decisions. And they should never worry about the whole, oh, gosh, if I run over and try to give them uh, some kind of first aid, will I be contaminating the scene? Their first duty is to preserve life. And if they think that person has half a chance of still being alive and something that they could do would make a difference to that, then they will do it. And we'll deal with the potential contamination later. All they've got to say is, I came in, I saw him on the floor, I had put some gloves on as I was running up, but nothing else, or you know, they will tell you what they've done, and then you can take that into account. And okay, potentially I've got this guy's DNA contaminating this area that I want to focus on. Well, that's great. He'll have his DNA sample on the elimination database. We'll just need to flag that up to the lab that it goes to, to say, this person was in very close proximity before the samples were taken. Contamination is a great word for, um, it's a great way of, of um, occasionally people will say, let's not do that because it's been contaminated. Well, until you examine something, how do you know if it's been contaminated or not? You can't see DNA, particularly if it's touch DNA. So if you can imagine that you've got strands of DNA which are in your sweat being exuded and then left behind as you touch something, there's this big thing about all sloughed off skin cells etc well there's been lots of research on uh, looking at sloughed off skin cells and can you actually extract DNA specifically from dead skin cells and the body of research would suggest that no it's from sweat and when you touch something you leave sweat behind and therefore you leave some of your DNA well if that's where all the touch DNA that we're looking at comes from it's going to be contaminated because you will have shaken hands with somebody. You will have touched a door, hand, a door handle at some point. Murderers don't go around going, right, I'm going to just quickly wash my hands and now I'm at you. So you don't know what they're leaving. We don't know how much secondary or tertiary transfer there is. So I think contamination is a challenge, but it should never be, it's never going to stop an investigation progressing. You should be able to legislate for it and take it into account. Okay. And then the evidence that's gathered at the scene. So say, I presume at some point, the knife is removed from dead body and then has to be put into a carefully sealed bag. And then what? What is the journey of that sort of 
that mm-hmm. vital piece of evidence. Okay, so imagine we're now then at the mortuary and the pathologist has carefully removed that because the pathologist has made the determination that yet we can move carefully the body with the knife in and ergo we've now got it and we've put it into either a weapons tube or something which is going to hold it in stasis if you like so it's keeping other people safe they can't cut themselves bearing in mind it's going to have blood on it and it's sharp Um, but also you don't want anything touching uh, the handle because clearly that's the thing that you really want to focus on Um, I am that person that will occasionally watch a TV programme and yell at the television don't put it straight in a bag everything's going to come off on the inside of a bag (laughs) it's got better as the years have gone on I've calmed down but the number of television programmes have gone up so the chances of my seeing somebody getting hold of a bag and just going there you go somebody might cut themselves on that and all the finger marks are going to rub off before it gets anywhere so we carefully packaged our item in an appropriate safe way and it's not moving around so nothing's being lost from it we may have taken a swab already do you remember when it was still here and it's on the floor and i'm in my crime scene and i've decided i'm going to take one and fast track that clearly now we've got an opportunity to work on it really carefully so in my force i would send that to um uh, one of the analytical providers that i've described and i would ask them to carefully sample that handle um, and they might do that with a series of either um, different types of swabs or mini tapes there are all sorts of ways of doing this it will depend to a certain extent on the substrate or the fabric of the handle is it rough is it smooth do they think that a swab you know like with a fine point will that get everywhere where we want to go for the touch dna of the person that's handled it bearing in mind that it has probably got some of the blood that's splashed up and we don't need to look for the victim's DNA here. We're just going to focus on the, the, the guy that's, that's held on to it. After that, I'm going to want it to come back to me for a full sequential treatment in my chemical enhancement laboratory to get every single bit of ridge detail that we can in terms of finger marks. Right, and the ridge, just to focus on that bit, that's the tiny tiny little ridge is it not in between the lines on your fingers yeah if you look at the at the ends of your fingers you'll see that you've got um patterns that will either go round and round in a circle or they will loop off to the left or sometimes just flow from one side to the other so the raised bits are the ridges and then between that you have furrows so you can imagine if you touch something and your hand is slightly damp with sweat you'll be leaving a latent or invisible impression of those finger marks on the surface. So imagine we've got our knife handle though, you've asked somebody to swab that, and swabbing involves getting a cotton tipped something or other and squidging it up and down. But you don't want them to swab all the ridges off because you don't know where they are yet. So you'll have to be asking the first people to look at it, perhaps with a light source examination, to see if they can see with different wavelengths of light by changing the contrast colour of the handle itself. Can they see where there's any kind of ridge detail and then just do the edges of that before it goes for its full sequential treatment? So they've taken some swabs, it then goes for its treatment whereby you will apply a sequence of chemicals in the appropriate order to develop those latent ridges that are either in the water constituent of sweat or the oily constituent of sweat, or there might be some amino acids. There are all sorts of different things that you apply to the surface 
and you will build up the best set of finger marks as you possibly can, record those with photography, and then you could, or certainly we do, go back and maybe swab where you can actually see the, that that detail is. Because if you don't get a, a DNA profile from your first set of swabs, you could potentially see if you could get a profile from where you have swab where the chemicals are, even though some of those chemicals will be an inhibitor to the PCR process in DNA, um, and it may not work. You can also try to remove the chemicals once you know where the, where the actual ridge detail is, and then swab underneath, if you like. So there are various methods that you would employ in the appropriate order, and you've got to have communication with your different areas so that everybody knows what you're trying for is best possible evidence. I want my best chance at a DNA profile, and I want my best chance at the ridge detail because this is a murder. Clearly, if it was a burglary, you'd probably pick one or the other. You wouldn't right. necessarily do, because this could take days. But okay. getting it right is the key here, isn't it? Because somebody has taken another life. That's the maximum sentence. That's as serious as it gets, unless we're talking multiple fatalities and counterterrorism. So you will throw everything at it. In other circumstances, you might make a determination. And according to budget and according to priorities, that changes dramatically across, across the country. There are some forces that don't deploy a forensic resource to burglary at all. There are some forces that do do residential burglary, but they don't do office burglaries. There are some forces that don't examine cars. There are some forces that don't examine for after a bike theft, for example. I do literally everything, but I'm lucky. I've got a small geographical area, but we've got a big international and national footprint because of our fraud interaction. But the actual number of exhibits and things that we'd need to do is relatively small compared to every other force. So I think I have the luxury of doing everything and doing it, which is to my mind, properly, to properly serve the, the victims of crime that come within my jurisdiction. Other forces don't have that luxury, and you've all got to work out how much money you've got over the course of the year and what your priorities are. So it becomes right. a little bit of a juggling act. So, so then going back to the sort of knife and the fingerprint, then I can't really remember, but I seem to think that we all have had our fingerprints taken, haven't we? Because that's how they end up on the database. No, 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 no. How does it work? So when I talk about the National Fingerprint Database, it's a criminal database. So when you are arrested for a recordable offence, your finger marks are taken. So in the old days, that would be ink and print. And now it's done um, on a platinum glass and those, those um, ridge detail from, from the whole of your hand is recorded automatically. Um, occasionally, that marvellous machine, which is in every police station, will break down and it's like people have forgotten that you could just get some ink and do it the old-fashioned way, but I'm getting old. So, one way or the other, there is either an ink set or there is this platinum glass set of your whole hand when you are arrested. A DNA swab is taken from the inside of your cheek. It's called a buckle swab because those big muscles on either side of your face are your buckle muscles. So you have a swab taken from inside there and that is sent for profiling and then that's added to the National DNA Database. So the, the fingerprint database was started roughly in 1901 at New Scotland Yard with Sir Edward Henry, who worked out a way of 
cataloging finger marks. So you could have them in a physical collection and you would be able to search, like you can search for a book in a library using the Dewey Decimal System, you would know where those fingerprints were. So before you were able to digitally search or without, without having tons of people to search the, um, the physical manual collection, everybody would learn that system and you'd have lots of people running around, taking a pile down, searching through them and doing it all by hand. And I am old enough to remember doing it. But obviously <laughs> at some point, you know, they took all the fun out of it. So those have now been, all of those old sets have all been scanned on. And there is this wonderful um, national system, Ident1 contains those images um, and it is all searched. So a 10 print set, as in a new arrestee who was arrested this morning, will be searched against the whole um, database, which is a little over 7 million sets of fingerprints with no human interaction whatsoever. And it all works beautifully. Okay, and that's to see if they have previous. Exactly. But what if they haven't ever done anything, but they might have just killed someone, they just don't match up? So you just, it's just harder to pin them to the crime. So say we've just, um, we've got some marks from our knife, from our crime scene, and we've got finger marks that we've collected, which are searchable. You search that against Ident 1, but nothing comes back. That mark will stay there. And if that person is arrested at a later date and a new set is added, there will be you know, every so often a shuffle round, if you like, and everything is searched against everything else. And consequently, at a later date, that person will be identified. But if they're not on the database at the time when you add your crime scene mark, they won't be found. Same is true for um, your DNA profile. So if you can imagine that the finger, fingerprint database was started in 1901 and it's just over 7 million, the DNA database was started in 1995, that's just over 6 million. So it's caught up a lot and it's by far the biggest database per capita in any country in the world. So the next biggest, well, the next two biggest are China and the USA, and they sort of occasionally vie for position um, in terms of who's got a massive DNA database, but neither of them have compared to us. So China and the USA have something like 1.7, 1.6% of their population. We've got 10% of our population on our criminal databases. And a, a certain reason for that is that because all the fabulous work that Alec Jeffries did in order to give us the opportunity, if you like, for using um, a biological marker like DNA for crime scene investigation, and he wasn't looking for that in the first place, but certainly recognised the opportunities, was that we needed changes in legislation to allow police officers to take that biological information from an arrestee. Um, consequently, around 1995, um, it became law very quickly that your mouth is not an intimate orifice. Would you be happy by going up and poking your finger in somebody else's mouth? Obviously it's an intimate orifice, but from the point of the legislation that was required, it isn't. So a police officer can stick a swab in your mouth. Other countries in the world, you've got to have a doctor for that kind of thing. Anyway, um, other changes in legislation meant that um, the, so the police officer's taken it and that we could then keep that, um, that DNA sample for any recordable offence. Consequently, so at the very, very beginning, you could take it if it was going to prove or disprove your involvement in an offence. 
And then eventually after conviction, you would keep it. So the database grew really, really rapidly. And the only time that it slightly decreased in size um, was the Protection of Freedoms Act, whereby um, quite a lot of people were challenging the fact that you took my DNA and I've not actually been convicted of anything. That's what I was going to ask. Does it come off? It does now. It used not to. So up until 2012, so 1995 to 2012, it would say, 2012, about a million profiles came off each database. Yeah, because, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be happy for my DNA and my fingerprints to stay on any database. I mean, for obvious reasons. But so that sort of goes into the contamination of evidence or corruption or mistakes that are made people ending up in prison for maybe things crimes that they haven't committed so my next question was really about evidence and the work that you do for inside justice that I know well too um when someone is in prison they are saying that they are innocent it looks like they are innocent but the evidence that might acquit them has disappeared or maybe it isn't held any longer so i suppose my question is around first of all how long is evidence held for and what's the legislation around that how long how long are exhibits supposed to be kept for there are very specific guidelines around that and it's all governed by the seriousness, for want of, the, of a better word, of the offence. So, for example, from a burglary where there's been a conviction, then the finger marks in that case that contributed to the conviction need to be kept for seven years. If a finger mark's taken from a burglary and it's not identified, we'll keep it for 10 years in the hope that, you know, that set might be added later because somebody's arrested, he wasn't on there at the time. In a murder investigation those exhibits should be kept for 30 years, absolute minimum, um, or for the duration of the sentence of the, of the individual who's convicted, because at any time throughout their sentence, they could appeal. Consequently, those exhibits have to be available to them in order to launch their appeal. In practice, sadly, we found through some of the work that we've done with Inside Justice, that just doesn't happen. Right, and then I presume no one's held accountable, but maybe that's me jumping to conclusions. Well, again, in my experience, nobody has been held accountable to date. So there have been um, a couple of occasions. One particular case leaps to mind whereby there was a finger mark in blood on a carrier bag, which is not the victims and certainly not the suspects. Consequently, you would think, that would be of significant interest. It would have been in, of interest to me. Um, but for various other reasons, person A has been convicted, finger marking blood. The investigation at Inside Justice and its experts have done suggests that this conviction is not sound and certainly deserves uh, greater attention. So we ask for the carrier bag. And my view is that if that mark wasn't good enough to be searched against the database, but I certainly would have another go because um, the algorithms that uh, that govern the search capacity of that database have improved significantly um, over time. So I think it would definitely be worth searching it again. But if it wasn't searchable, um, then I would want to see what DNA there was from that area 
clearly we're thinking that it's the victim's blood, but that that mark has been caused by somebody placing a hand into wet blood on the surface, or that the hand was wet with blood before it touched the surface. So if we looked for a profile from that area where the item has been touched, and we remove the profile of the victim, what's left might well be the person who's touched the item. Does that make sense? So yeah. we know we're gonna have a mixed profile because we know we've got this area swamped with blood. But once we've got a profile from it, if we take that person away, what remains should be the individual that we want. And they don't have the item. There were also tapings taken from the deceased. And based on that principle that we just discussed earlier, that every contact leaves a trace. So those tapings were examined at the time and there was no physical exchange between the suspect who was convicted and the deceased. I would say, and fibre experts of my acquaintance would certainly say, absence of evidence is evidence. If there was no exchange between the clothing the person A was wearing and the deceased, then they didn't do it. But that wasn't the case that was put forward at the time, or well, that wasn't certainly wasn't explored um, sufficiently uh, during the trial. Consequently, um, if it had been, that person would have, wouldn't have been convicted. So those tapings now, we already know there's no fibre exchange, but those tapings might well have traces of DNA on them that would indicate who did interact. Because clearly, if two people have been in close proximity and it's an interactive crime, You've taken tapings for the purposes of seeing what the fibre exchange was. DNA technology has moved on now to the stage where you would be able to look for traces of DNA on those tapes. They don't have those either. So from that point of view, our investigation is rather stuck. So from the rather gloomy point of view for this guy at the moment is he will probably serve the rest of his life in prison simply because the exhibits that should have been held by the police force that should have been re-examined or should have been able to be re-examined in order to launch an appeal just don't exist anymore. But nothing is going to happen about that. And not that, you know, I'm sort of always on a witch hunt, but I am interested in accountability and sort of good governance and good leadership because often these things happen when those things don't exist. Um, you know, and I suppose you can't make the fall guy the head of that particular police force because you could be getting rid of a very good leader who actually wasn't around when the exhibits went missing, right? So it's difficult to maybe historically put in the accountability, would you say? You're absolutely right that the this is a long time ago and the chief of that police force may well have never even heard of the case. Um, my concern is, though, that without there being some kind of action as a result of what's happened in that case, this could be happening all over. This could be happening in all sorts of cases. Um, certainly there is a significant problem with um, the rules around disclosure. And I mentioned how complex disclosure in this country is earlier. Um, the difficulty with disclosure from the purpose of trying to launch an appeal as you're approaching your trial, so you've been arrested and charged and you're going to court, at any point through that process and throughout the trial, you have access to literally everything that the prosecution is going to put forward. And you can have your own experts and you can have it examined separately and you can get a, a report that might challenge the prosecution experts' concept or their interpretation of the results. And at appeal, 
if you appeal straight away, you still have access to all of those items, etc, etc. If you don't, post-conviction, you have no right, no automatic right to those exhibits because the rules of disclosure don't apply post-conviction. So somebody's been committed and they've gone to prison and then they think, oh, hang on, I think, for example, um, DNA's moved on since my trial. They didn't test all of those samples at the time. Um, maybe if somebody tested them now, there might be, they might find somebody else. I think digital investigation has moved on. They couldn't see anything from those CCTV images. Maybe now they could, they could tidy those images up. There is no automatic way for that individual to be able to have access to those items in order to get those new tests done. Disclosure doesn't apply post-conviction. Consequently, they are stuck. If they ask for those exhibits, the answer invariably is there has to be new and compelling evidence for you to be able to launch your appeal. You don't have any new and compelling evidence and they'll say, no, but it might be on that swab that wasn't tested. It might be on that tape that wasn't looked at. It might be somewhere in there. That will be described as a fishing expedition and you don't have any new and compelling evidence, so you can't go to appeal. To which they'll say, yeah, but the new and compelling evidence might be on those exhibits. Yeah, but you can't have the exhibits unless you've got new and compelling evidence. And they are caught in this hamster wheel of you can't get hold of a thing in order to show that the thing might be there. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. So I would say that there needs to be, um, and I've obviously simplified this a lot. If you looked yeah. into, the, into the legislative description, it's not exactly like that. But I think for the purpose of people who are not involved in this, immersed in the world of how forensic evidence is put through a court process and then an appeal, that's, that's a summary. So, you know, if you get angry letters saying, well, that's not exactly right. For the purposes of this conversation, that is exactly what happens. And right. consequently, I think that there is a public perception where, whereby people assume that if you're wrongly convicted, you can get that sorted out. You really can't. It's practically impossible to get to appeal. If you look at the, the statistical information around how many cases have been referred by the Criminal Case Review Commission, I think they... Um, they launched some, uh, some statistics the other day. The percentage is tiny, but also um, the number of cases that have been referred to a laboratory for further testing was something like 17. Don't, I can't remember exactly. It was a small number. And one of my colleagues said, well, 17 a year, that is not a lot. They said, no, 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 not a year, ever. Oh my God. Since they were set up. And that's the Criminal Cases Review Commission who could insist on a police force handing over exhibits for retesting. They have the powers and authority to do it. But for reasons never thoroughly explained to me, don't. Right. And who is the person who would sort of be in charge of any reform in that area? Would it be the Home Secretary? Would it be someone further down from a ministerial point of view or does it take will of all the people in a senior management and ministerial position? In terms of uh, changing the way that police forces treat um, evidence, so you know often when something goes wrong, people will say, oh, we need a change in legislation or we need a change in guidelines or we need a... 
I don't think we need to change anything. They just need to be enforced. And I think that that potentially could be could be direction from the Home Secretary because um, ultimately that's our boss. But in, invariably in these things, you know, the Home Secretary's got other things on. <laughs> so it almost feels as if it needs to be a force by force, gradual approach, getting the buy-in from each senior leader, that they will then make sure that their own force is complying with the guidelines and regulations that already exist, rather than it coming top down. Because certainly some chiefs that we've spoken to are completely on board with this. Yeah, the chief constables. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, one in particular has contributed to a video to say how important this is. So that guy is right behind us. Others will flatly refuse to have any engagement at all, as in, um, oh, you know, there were some, there were four sperm heads on a slide. Well, obviously, these days you could examine those sperm heads, and that was found on the deceased, so that's going to really tell you who the guy was. Nope, absolutely not. Nope, go away, not interested, not going to retest. Nope, we've got a conviction, we're all happy. Well, if you're that happy, give us the slide. I mean, I would presume it's a defensiveness around, oh, well, if that happened on my watch, we got it wrong and we don't want to have to deal with the fallout of that. So I guess that could be one reason. Another reason could just be, I've got lots of other things on, I can't be bothered. So laziness. Do you think it's one thing or the other, maybe a mixture of both or something else I haven't thought of? In the case of the latter example, if people are thinking that, then how... how how wrong can they be? Because at some point, we are going to find a way through this legislative minefield, and we will get exhibits, and they will be retested where they exist, and we will be able to prove it. So why not just say, as many police forces do, well, it's going to cost you a lot of money, or it's going to take you a lot of time, but all I've got to do is hand these bits and bits and bobs over. Okay, if you're willing to take possession of them, uh, sign here, please, on your own head, be it. Off you go. Let us know how it goes. And then if they've got it wrong, they have been open, transparent. They've given the, the people who want to reinvestigate every opportunity to do so. They've been supportive. They haven't been obstructive. And then they can issue a statement to say, we investigated this case in all good conscience and we've followed every investigative protocol as laid down in national guidelines and we were confident that at the time that the investigation was as thorough as we could have made it. Subsequently, we found out that, that, that this investigation and the conviction had been brought into question. We immediately handed over the exhibits that we had in our possession and the second investigation discovered that and then... Who's going to blame them for that? If they did it to the best of their ability in the first place and then found out that it was wrong, hands up, no holds barred. It's nobody's fault then, is it? And they've done all the right things to get it right. Exactly, but it's the chief constable, is it, that has to okay evidence being re-looked at? It would depend on the the seriousness of the offence and it also depends on the size of the force because clearly in a larger force then... It doesn't have to be the commissioner, the, the assistant commissioners, the deputy assistant commissioners. They, the Metropolitan Police are not one of the forces that have been brought into question. They were just the biggest force that I thought of. So clearly, depending on the force structure, there will be other people that could authorise 
um, the release of exhibits. Um, it might well just be the senior investigating officer in a case who is still there. They could sign it over. But you asked also about, you know, potentially is it laziness? It's I know that in some cases it's not that because we have been to the Supreme Court for a case in particular when we've asked for exhibits and that force has put enormous resources into, no, you can't have them. And it's harder to go to the Supreme Court to stop somebody having access to something than it is just to hand them over. So then my question is, does the Supreme Court not go, gosh, that's strange that the police don't want to hand it over? What possibly could be the reason? And you'll probably tell me lots of reasons why the police might not hand over some evidence, but I can't imagine what they are. Do you know lots of lawyers or judges uh, a few lawyers, not so many judges. So quite often, um, and in my experience, it's the more senior you go, that you will have a discussion about somebody about something where I would say, clearly in this case, they've got to hand the exhibits over. And the senior legal person will say, ah, yes. But if you look at section seven of the disclosure legislation, I think you'll see that it says... That disclosure doesn't apply, so no, they shouldn't hand it over. Yeah, but, but they should. No, no, no. But the law says that they don't have to, so therefore they shouldn't. And you get just swamped in this whole, but there's no precedent for that. There is no legal argument for that. There's no, there is no legislative example of why they should. And the whole, but obviously they should, is completely lost. There's no room for common sense. At all. So we go all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court judgment was the one that said, um, and, and it's actually written down in that judgment, um, yeah, but the rules of, of disclosure don't apply post-conviction. So there's no obligation on this police force to hand these things over. Not a thought given to, why are they going to so much effort? Yeah, I'm no detective, you know, but that is the thing that sort of flags in my mind. If someone's being, you know, obstructive in that way, you know, there's usually not smoke without fire, in my experience. Indeed. But um, there's quite a lot on the Inside Justice website about all of these cases and the, the complexities and the journeys that we've gone through and the various hurdles you know, that we've got stuck at. But one way or the other, we are going to find a way through with all of these cases. Um, and obviously the... At the end of the journey, if if a force has um, destroyed the exhibits, there is no way for us to to find a way through that particular maelstrom. And we're not we're not at the end point with any of our cases yet. There's always one thing where we think mm, they might not have that that or that, but I bet that exists somewhere. Or all of these things were sent to the forensic science service. There will be a little trace of that thing somewhere in the forensic archive. And if we can get the permission to have it, then there's still a chance. Then my instinct is that none of these things will change. None of these things will fundamentally change unless there's a kind of groundswell of support from the public to say, I didn't know it was like that. Yeah, which is actually one of the reasons I decided to start this podcast, because, you know, I've worked in sort of prisons for over two decades but there's so many different parts to the criminal justice system and almost every week I'm learning something that just totally shocks me where I'm like no that can't possibly be true because that's ludicrous so I, that's why I started the podcast to sort of talk to people like you and be like 
what are the areas that will make people go, oh my God, what? And then who are this, the younger generation who might be coming into these roles and be holding these responsibilities to actually be like, well, actually, maybe we could change that. And, you know, and hearing from people like you about, well, how would we change it? And who is responsible? Who is accountable? I think is really important for people to hear because usually we hear about these things through the radio or the newspapers, um, which is quite one-dimensional at times, should we say. Um, I think it's also important to point out that Inside Justice is a charitable organisation, isn't it? And it's the stuff that you do in your spare time. Um, So it's amazing that there's charities out there who are fighting with great expertise from people like yourself and, and others to try and prove someone's innocence. And that's amazing. Yeah. And I also think that that's it's a strange reaction from some of the police forces and from the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Why would they think that any of us have any motive as opposed to we just want to make sure that this conviction is sound? We want to make sure that every available investigative avenue was explored to its fullest extent. And people will often say, why do you do it? You work for the police. Well, obviously, it makes my entire working life a complete nonsense if I know I get it right. I know my teams get it right to the best of our ability. You can never guarantee, but we will turn over every stone we do absolutely every single thing but the more expensive forensic provision gets in the private sector and the less money that forces have to be able to spend on it and the fewer resources they have in terms of people because cuts are made there in order to be able to service frontline policing which might well be the right decision for that force but the chances for these things to go wrong will just increase so you've got to have some kind of check and balance and it makes sense for me being absolutely dedicated to the to the role of the police and the fact that we are trying to protect the public by investigation and by preventing these crimes from happening again. Obviously, I have to be involved in the other side because there's no other organisation that's doing that. The CCRC aren't doing it. Nobody else is doing it. And the CCRC being? The Criminal Cases Review Commission. Right. And that's who you would refer your case to if you were appealing. Very, yeah, there are various routes to appeal. That's one organisation that we would refer, um, refer some of our uh, cases to. Um, but as I said earlier, um, you know, the, their record so far for cases being referred by them to a, to a laboratory for further testing is something like... 17 in their entire history so we have our issues with them too they have the authority to take exhibits from a force for the purposes of reinvestigation um but they they are also keen to quote the all that sounds like a like a fishing expedition well if you don't have automatic right to the exhibits and you don't think the exhibits were tested the first time round properly then we're paying for it. What's wrong with the fishing? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's not going to cost you guys anything. We're doing all this for free. We've got um, retired high court judges. We've got solicitors, barristers. We've got retired police officers who are in very senior positions in, in the Met. We've got um, intelligence analysts. We've got wonderful forensic scientists in all ranges, fibres and genetics and blood pattern analysis. We've got lots of people who give a lot of their time to getting this done properly and we wouldn't do it. It's not a hobby. There's a definite need for this to be done. Yeah, exactly. And 
What would your advice be for people coming up who want to get into this line of work? They want to get into forensics. I appreciate forensics is a, a hugely broad topic and we've only scratched the surface or barely even done that. What would your sort of advice be to someone who was thinking about moving into this world or an undergraduate? I think the first thing to work out is what is it that you want to end up doing? Because we've sort of scratched the surface a bit, but in our um, in our crime scene example of our murder um, on the television, there's one person who will examine the body, perform the post-mortem, comfort the families of the victims, sleep with the senior investigating officer, take the finger marks, profile the DNA. Potentially in a, in a, in a murder investigation, there are hundreds of people involved and each of them will be performing a very specific task. And a small team of people will be reviewing the CCTV evidence, but there might be so much of it that that's all they do. They didn't they never see what happened with the DNA or or the finger marks or anything else. The people in the fingerprint bureau will be profiling and trying to to match all of the the fingerprint identification information that they've got, and you could have one or several people on that simultaneously. In DNA profiling, it's very compartmentalized. Somebody will be working, and it's mostly automated. So somebody's doing extraction. And somebody's doing overseeing the PCR bit and somebody's looking at the analytical results and then somebody's doing interpretation. So I want to work in forensics is so broad that you really need to think, where do I want to be? Okay, I was wondering whether um, when you sort of become more senior in your career and you might end up as a crime scene manager like you were for the Homicide Command, whether you are then more multidisciplinary and you can sort of, well, I'm sure you just are from the experience that you've got anyway, aside from your specific expertise. Yes, but at that point, by the time you get to the to the stage of being a crime scene manager, your role is managerial and strategic. You very rarely, I used to say to people, I don't do anything around here. I'm just looking at what you're doing and working out what needs to happen next. Right. So, yeah, you're directing people. You need to be very hands off. You can't get stuck into something because then somebody else will want to ask you a question. And you're not there then because you're all suited up. You've got double gloves on and you're over there with your hands in that. And they can't come over to talk to you and you can't leave without. So you've got to be away from it and directing and strategic and be available then to be talking to the senior investigating officer, giving them updates, changing the strategy according to the investigative needs. Um, so at that point, you probably do know quite a lot about all of the different disciplines that you're directing, but it's not something you need at the beginning of your career because maybe your career path is not going to take you to be a crime scene manager. Maybe, you know, you've got different different skills to you so I guess my recommendation would be if you're interested in in forensic investigation in general that a pure science is always going to get you somewhere and if you decide by the time you've finished your degree forensic investigation is actually not what you want to do after all you can use that pure science for a number of different things so if you did chemistry for example you could end up working in toxicology and obviously toxicology is used a huge amount in forensic investigation it's 
every suspect's blood alcohol, what drugs were in their system, how many of those had metabolised by the time they were arrested, what was the what was the influence of those chemical substances in their body at the time when this attack took place. Could this victim physically have walked given the level of X, Y and Z in her bloodstream? So is it feasible that she fell off or did somebody have to pick her up and throw her off? So toxicology is great. But you don't need to do forensic science to do toxicology and poisons. You need to do chemistry. Okay, so it sounds like a sort of a labyrinth, really, to navigate. Are there any good websites or resources for people to visit? Or would you say, actually, it's about finding someone's email like you and saying, help, can you help me? Even if it's someone to help them think about what they can and can't do or the routes that, you know playing to their talents, whether it's chemistry, whether it's actually psychology, because then you've got the criminal profiling, haven't you, of course? And I'm much more of a um, psychology lover, I guess. I'm certainly not a scientist. Um, so there's sort of that route too as well, isn't there? So are there any good resources or websites to direct people to? I would suggest, obviously, I would say this, but um, clearly you can see the range of expertise there is for Inside Justice on the Inside Justice website, but also mentioned um, the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. And we've got um, not a broader spectrum there, but but our members then will cover things like forensic psychiatry also um, and policing in the pure and, and a lot more forensic medicine, so pathology and um, forensic mes- medical examiners, for example. So you could write in, we've got a... Um, a contact box on there so you could write in to the uh, British Academy of Forensic Sciences so that's BAFS B-A-F-S and we'll find you somebody there that might be working in the specialism that you're thinking of that would give you a bit of advice about what it's actually like when you when you get there but in terms of working out what it is that you want to do I think if you've thought about um, if you're if you have if you're not studying already and you're thinking about choosing a career I think Look at that university and what do the people who take that course end up doing? And that's always going to give you a good idea, isn't it? So if you look at a forensic science undergraduate course and then you ask the university, what did 50% of your did 50% of your students last year end up with a forensic science career? And the answer is no. Probably don't do that one then. Um, if it, if you're absolutely determined that that's that's what you where you want to end up. Um, then you can see, I think, by looking at the results of the universities, where do most of your students end up working or talk to the course director or talk to that department head? Um, Because much as I hate saying this these days, people are paying for that education. So they should give you that information in advance. And there are lots of forensic science um, degrees, which are really, really interesting. And there, there is nothing wrong with learning for learning's sake. My first degree was in classics. It's great for crosswords and philosophical discussions late at night. It hasn't helped me in terms of my career path, but it did help me learn how to learn and how to study and how to then process thought, etc. So there's nothing wrong with a forensic science degree that will teach you that. But if most of those people end up in the probation service or end up in a solicitor's office, and that's not where you want to be, then pick your course according to where most of those people end up. Brilliant. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for today and for your time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Links relevant to this episode 
can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.